This is a mainstream space that is now being almost deliberately inundated with false and misleading information and hate speech, and it's going relatively unmonitored. Elon Musk took control of Twitter last week, and disinformation experts say the impact is already being felt. It's Monday, October 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, Musk himself posted a baseless conspiracy theory over the weekend. Also, still no concession from Brazilian President Bolsonaro after losing yesterday's election. Voters there decided to return former President Lula da Silva to power. And some animals, like birds and frogs, are famous for the sounds they make, but have you ever heard a turtle? Most turtles were thought to make no sounds at all until researchers went deep. It's 401. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The suspect in the home invasion hammer attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco is now facing federal charges of assault and attempted kidnapping. Police say they found tape, rope, and zip ties at the scene. David DePappi facing decades behind bars. Paul Pelosi is recovering from a broken skull. The future of affirmative action is on the line at the Supreme Court, Harvard, and the University of North Carolina both defending their race-conscious admissions criteria, which conservative groups argue discriminate against white and Asian students. In the North Carolina case, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson today pushed back against the notion that race is ever the only consideration for admission. How is race being used in this process? You keep saying we object to the use of race standing alone. But as I read the record and understand their process, it's never standing alone. A ruling is not expected until June. President Biden plans to speak later this hour and raise the possibility of imposing a windfall tax on oil companies if they don't boost domestic production. High gas prices are among the top voter concerns. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more. Major U.S. oil and gas companies, including Exxon and Chevron, have been making record-setting profits and handing back billions to shareholders. In recent weeks, Biden has asked oil companies to use their profits to lower gas prices for consumers. On Friday, after reports of the company's profits were released, the president said it outraged him. His remarks this afternoon come just eight days before the midterm election, as the economy and inflation remain top concerns for voters. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. President Biden spoke by phone today with the winner of Brazil's presidential election. The White House says he congratulated Luis Inácio Lula da Silva and praised the strength of Brazil's democracy. Incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro is expected to speak today. It is unclear whether he will publicly concede defeat. After Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, regulators in Europe are stepping up scrutiny of and potential penalties on the platform as NPR's Bobby Allen reports. Elon Musk says he wants to loosen up Twitter's rules for what is permitted on the site. But if that allows hate speech and disinformation to flourish, Twitter could face serious penalties under the Digital Services Act. That's according to the European Commission's Executive Vice President, Marguerite Vestier. There is a European rulebook, and you should live by it. Otherwise, we have the penalties, we have the fines, we have all the, you know, all the assessments and and all the decisions that will then uh, come to haunt you. Vestier says tech companies that don't comply with the law could be fined 6% of global revenue. For Twitter, that could be a fine of up to $300 million. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Copenhagen. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Gasoline prices in Massachusetts have risen by an average of nearly 20 cents per gallon in the last week. The spike has a lot to do with supply and demand. More of us are on the road and supplies are limited. WBUR's Dave Faniff has more. AAA Northeast spokesman Mark Shieldrop says the gasoline inventory here in the Northeast is below last year, and last year's inventory was already lower than normal. With more people on the road, he says the situation is becoming acute. Inventories here in the Northeast fell by about 1.5 million barrels just in the past week. Meanwhile, in the rest of the country, inventories built up a little bit. So we're seeing a, a little bit of a tight supply situation here. And refiners are working at near max capacity. The latest AAA Northeast survey shows the average statewide price of the pump at three seventy-eight a gallon. In Metro Boston, the average is $3.88. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Authorities are reporting another white supremacist gathering in Massachusetts. Members of the of a neo-Nazi group rallied yesterday at a Kingston hotel where dozens of migrants without homes are living. The demonstrators wore masks and made anti-refugee comments over a loudspeaker. The Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition issued a statement condemning the protest and praising organizations and officials that are helping the migrants. All of the ballot drop boxes in Boston are closed today because of Halloween. The mayor's office says you can still vote early in person or you can drop your ballots off in person at Boston City Hall by 5 o'clock this evening. The boxes will reopen tomorrow. Expect a lot of ghosts and goblins out tonight. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says it should stay dry for your Halloween evening outdoor plans. No tricks to this Halloween forecast. Mild temperatures are only gradually cooling back through the upper 50s and then eventually middle 50s for trick-or-treaters, so no need to get super bundled up this year. Skies will be mostly cloudy overall, and most of us will be dry. The only spot I could see a sprinkle or light passing shower is Cape Cod. I don't even think it's worth having the umbrella, though. After midnight, more scattered showers will arrive for everyone and linger into tomorrow. And tomorrow's high will be around 65 degrees. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Elon Musk has owned Twitter for less than a week, and already things are changing. Researchers and the company's own staff have identified a coordinated campaign to spread hate on the platform. Musk himself has shared an unfounded conspiracy theory about Nancy Pelosi's husband. And to talk about all of this, we're joined now by NPR's Shannon Bond, who covers online platforms. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so as we said, we are just a few days into the Elon Musk era on Twitter. How are things going? Well, Elsa, this is Elon Musk we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, of course, it's controversial. Um, Now, he has never been shy, right, especially in how he uses Twitter. You know, he has more than 100 million followers there. He's long used his account to provoke, to tease, to troll. And now he's doing these things, but from a position of a lot more power. And, you know, that means that worries about 
what his ownership will augur for this company were really exacerbated this weekend when he posted this baseless, lurid conspiracy theory about the violent attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul. Now, this came from a fringe website with a long history of posting fake stories. Now, Musk eventually did delete the tweet hours later, but not until it had already been you know, retweeted and liked tens of thousands of times. And wow. I think this matters, right? Because yeah. now he is the one calling all the shots here. He's fired the company's leadership. Today, he dissolved its board. It's just him. Okay, well, that's just one tweet in particular. But I imagine we are seeing broader changes, right, across Twitter? Yeah. I mean, I think you remember uh, that Musk said before he owned Twitter that he wanted to unleash more free speech on the platform. He has previously said he thinks all legal speech should be permitted there, no matter how offensive or harmful. Now, last week, he walked that back a bit. He said it couldn't be a free-for-all hellscape. You know, he doesn't want to scare off advertisers, which are how Twitter makes money. But as soon as news broke on Thursday that he had taken control of Twitter, we saw plenty of people celebrating this idea that he's going to get rid of what they see as censorship on the platform. I spoke with Sarah Aniano, a disinformation analyst at the Anti-Defamation League. Elon Musk has said enough on Twitter even before his takeover to make people believe that he is on the side of saying whatever you want without consequences. Yeah. So then what's been the impact of those words? Can we tell? Well, Aniano and her colleagues have been tracking what's happening on Twitter, and they found that since Musk took over on Thursday, users have posted thousands of tweets and retweets with anti-Semitic memes. There's also been reporting about a rise in racist slurs. I took a look at Twitter data, and you can see a definite increase in the use of several racist and homophobic slurs in just the past few days. Hmm. The researchers say this is being driven by a coordinated campaign on pop on platforms popular, popular with the far right, at least in some cases here. And, you know, we're seeing people encouraging each other to amplify these hateful posts on Twitter. Well, how has Twitter responded to all of this so far? Well, Musk and the company didn't respond to requests for comment. But on Friday, Twitter's head of safety tweeted that they are aware of a coordinated campaign to post hate speech and are banning these accounts. He, in fact, he said just 300 accounts were responsible for more than 50,000 tweets using one, one slur. Musk himself last week posted to clarify that no changes had been made to Twitter's existing rules. He says he's going to create a content moderation council of people with diverse views and won't make any big decisions before then, including things like bringing back President Donald Trump, who was or former President Donald Trump, who was banned. Mm-hmm. I think also, though, what the past few days have shown is that even without making any actual changes to Twitter policy, Musk is making his mark. And there's a group of people who are feeling emboldened by his ownership. They are already having an impact. Indeed. That is NPR's Shannon Bond. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks, Elsa. Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, has yet to speak publicly since his defeat in last night's runoff election. The incumbent, far-right populist, lost to leftist and former president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. It was a big defeat for Bolsonaro, whose movement will live on despite his personal political loss. NPR's Kerry Khan reports. The chanting and partying continued in many neighborhoods in Brazil's largest city, Sao Paulo, long after election officials called it for Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. I'm very happy. 39-year-old Claudia Miranda says she is elated, relieved, so many emotions. I really hate Bolsonaro, so I'm hope for happy days or uh, bad days. 
Not far from this ecstatic bar scene, 69-year-old Bolsonaro voter Tonya Mara was feeling dread. She was standing outside a deserted pizza place. She says De Silva is a thief and is corrupt. She says the economy is recuperating and she fears De Silva will ruin it. After a bruising and dirty campaign waged by these two men with very different political persuasions, Brazil is deeply divided. De Silva won by a little more than two million votes, less than two percentage points. Last night, speaking to supporters, he immediately acknowledged the great divide and pledged to be president for all. We are capable of building a country for everyone, a Brazil with peace, democracy and opportunity for all, he said. That is going to be a tall order. Da Silva is a skilled, seasoned politician. This will be his third time as president. And he wrangled together a broad coalition of lawmakers and activists to beat Bolsonaro. But Sao Paulo-based political scientist Guilherme Casarroyas says Bolsonaro is not going away. He has the backing of 58 million people who voted for him. If Bolsonaro uh, can mobilize this, this massive amount of votes, he will be able to... Uh, to serve as the opposition to the Lula administration, not only in Congress, but also in the streets and in social media. Bolsonaro's party did well in Congress and in state houses, making it now the leading political opposition force in the country. That will complicate many of De Silva's promises, including his pledge of zero tolerance for deforestation in the Amazon. Oliver Stunkel, an international relations expert in Sao Paulo, agrees that Bolsonaro's base isn't going away. Brazilian democracy has stepped back from the cliff, but it still uh, faces a profound threat from destructive polarization, which will make it very difficult for Lula to govern in the coming years. On a street in this well-to-do Sao Paulo neighborhood, a popcorn vendor is doing brisk business. She vive in bolhas hoje, né? Voter Cecilia Correa says everyone is in informational bubbles these days and don't communicate with those who don't agree with them. She lives that at home. She voted for De Silva. Her husband, Henrique Garcia, voted for Bolsonaro. Vivemos democraticamente. Eu respeito, ela me respeita. He says they live democratically and respectfully together. Maybe Brazil can do the same. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Sao Paulo. Some animals are famous for the sounds they make, birds and their songs, frogs and their ribbits. But have you ever heard of a talkative turtle? Well, most turtles were thought to not make sounds at all until researchers went deep, as NPR's Laurel Wamsley reports. Do turtles talk? What about other lesser-known vertebrates? The answer is yes, according to a new paper in Nature Communications, presenting evidence that many species thought to be mute do in fact vocalize. And the researchers caught it on tape. Here's a southern New Guinea giant softshell turtle. And here's a Sicilian, a limbless amphibian that lives hidden underground. 
Gabriel Yurikovich Cohen is lead author of the paper and an evolutionary biologist working on his PhD at the University of Zurich. The project got started after he read about a turtle in the Amazon making sounds, and he started wondering about the little sounds his own pet tortoises made. He got in touch with a researcher at his former university in Brazil. He developed a type of hydrophone, which is pretty much a microphone that goes underwater. And I started recording my own pets, and I, I actually heard them making a lot of noises. It was on. He traveled to eight or nine institutions in five countries on a quest to record animal species that were thought mostly to be mute. He recorded 50 kinds of turtles, as well as tuataras, Sicilians, and lungfish. And it turned out none of them were mute. Actually, every single animal I recorded made sounds. He says the findings point to a common ancestor some 400 million years ago. Neil Kelly is a paleontologist at Vanderbilt University. Sometimes it's surprising how much we still don't know about things that aren't necessarily uncommon, but live alongside us. Kelly says the paper's conclusion, mapping these vocalizations onto the evolutionary tree, makes sense. He notes there are unique challenges to studying animal sounds evolutionarily. It's very hard to trace that in the fossil record, because sounds obviously don't fossilize. Um, and most vocal equipment is soft tissue based. And it's important to note that sound production and hearing are different things. Snakes, for example, are famous for their hissing sounds, but they aren't thought to be able to hear themselves or each other hissing. And a turtle making sounds doesn't necessarily mean that it's communicating that way, says John Weens, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Arizona. I think there's some conflation of making sounds and acoustic communication. Yurkovich Cohen says that while they aren't sure what all the sounds mean, they used several strategies to identify sounds used for communication, such as using cameras to correlate sounds with behaviors that could demonstrate some kind of intention. Ween says the recording of these sounds is an important step toward further understanding. If you don't record these sounds and you know report them, there's no reason why anybody would study acoustic communication in, in those things, right? You don't even know that they're making sounds. The next step, he says, is figuring out what all these animals might actually be saying. Laurel Wamsley, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered... A look at how effective affirmative action has been in achieving higher diversity on college campuses. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In business news, Waltham-based lab equipment maker Thermo Fisher is acquiring a British diagnostics company. The acquisition of the Binding Site Group will cost Thermo Fisher about $2.5 billion. The Binding Site's products include tests to identify blood cancers and immune system disorders. On Wall Street today, stocks closed the day down. The Dow was off 0.4% to close at 32033 the S&P 500 down three quarters of a percent at 38.72, and the Nasdaq closed down one percent at 10,988. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state, and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at Express Your Health MA. Dot org.
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain tonight. The lows will be around 56 degrees, chance of rain early tomorrow. Then it'll be mostly cloudy. The highs will be around 65. Wednesday and Thursday look to be nice and sunny. The highs will be in the low 60s. Sunny and a bit warmer on Friday. The high 67. Right now it is 67 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Today, the Supreme Court began hearing arguments in two cases that could impact affirmative action. These cases challenge the constitutionality of race-conscious admissions at Harvard University and at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Admissions policies that take race into account have faced plenty of legal challenges over the last several decades. And a key question at the center of the debate is, has affirmative action actually worked to make college campuses more diverse? Well, we're going to talk about that particular question with Dominique Baker, Associate Professor of Education Policy at Southern Methodist University. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So I know that you've been listening to today's arguments before the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court issues its ruling on affirmative action, tell me what specifically might you be looking for? Uh, most of us are looking and saying, OK, we think it's likely that they are going to constrain the use of race conscious admissions policies. And the question is, how far are we constraining? Mm-hmm. And so it matters so much more than just for colleges and universities. And it matters so much more than just for initial enrollment. There are programs that are focused on things like helping uh, Black and Latinx students uh, become doctors, right? There are all these types of things within colleges and universities. There are all these other things as well, thinking about uh, the labor market and the workforce, that we have created policies that are race conscious, that I think could be touched on, depending on the direction the court would like to go in their decision. Well, the purpose of these kinds of race-conscious policies has been to address discrimination that had long put students from non-white and less affluent backgrounds at a disadvantage. So how has that been working so far? What can you tell us about racial representation trends at colleges and universities in this country the last 40 or so years? Part of the challenge with this is that we have some states that have banned race-conscious admissions policies, and we have some states that are allowed to use them. And what we sort of see is that states that are allowed to use race-conscious admissions policies have much higher racial diversity compared to states that aren't allowed to use them. Um, But I do think it's important to note that even within institutions that uh, are allowed to use race-conscious admissions policies, there are still cases where you have institutions that are not as diverse uh, as we would want them to be. Well, I know that you've done your own study about what could happen if really selective universities 
institute some kind of like random draw lottery in their admissions process, uh, a process that wouldn't take race or gender or income into account specifically. And I'm so curious, what did you find in that study? We found that regardless of what we looked at to say sort of you're academically eligible for this lottery is if you institute some sort of lottery, you're going to see sharp drops in black uh, and uh, Latinx students um, enrolling in both highly selective institutions, but also moderately selective institutions. So a, a significant portion of the country, not just the Harvards and Yales of the world. So what do you think ultimately should be the best path towards equitable college admissions? One of the things that's really challenging about the current state of race-conscious admissions policies is that over time, the Supreme Court has narrowed and narrowed what the focus of what was supposed to be this broad idea of affirmative action um, from LBJ. Several different Supreme Court cases have changed the focus to the point that race-conscious admissions policies can only focus really on finding ways to diversify the institution, which is really different than trying to find ways to redress past harms uh, that have uh, been inflicted upon people uh, by purposeful uh, policy decisions. So the ideal way to think about college admissions that would focus on actual racial justice would be to expand the scope of colleges and universities and our country to think about the ways to redress past harms. That is Dominique Baker of Southern Methodist University. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. South Korea is mourning the victims of the nation's worst crowd disaster on record. Revelers surged down a narrow alley during Halloween celebrations, killing more than 150 people. The exact cause has not yet been determined, but as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, many are asking whether police crowd controls could have averted the disaster. Buddhist monks chant and strike bells in wooden blocks as mourners lay flowers, candles, and liquor at an improvised altar. It's by a subway station in Seoul's hilly, multicultural Itaewon neighborhood. Around 100,000 young partygoers, many in Halloween costumes, packed into the area on Saturday night. Near the altar is the narrow alleyway into which the crowd surged. It runs downhill to Itaewon's main street. Hours after the surge, a bar worker stood at the uphill end of the alleyway. He didn't give his name, but he told reporters what he saw from inside one of the clubs that lined the alley. We could hear some people in the crowd saying, don't push. But someone in the back said, hey, push, push. And people started screaming, and the crowd poured in toward our club. He said minors aren't allowed into his club, but he let them in to save them. But even after that, people collapsed at the entrance and some passed out. We tried to rescue them, but our club was at the end of the surge, and there were already three or four layers of people piled on, so we couldn't. Police have combed the alley for clues about just what triggered the crowd surge as the country observes a week of national mourning. The National Police Agency said that they had 137 officers on the scene, but they were directing traffic and preventing street crime, not controlling the crowds. But the police should have been better prepared, says Moon Hyun Chol, who's a professor in the Department of Police Science at Sungshil University in Seoul. 
The large crowd didn't just gather suddenly, he says. There were plenty of signs from the day and the week before that this was going to happen. The stampede is the latest national tragedy to be seared into South Korea's collective memory. The last big one was the sinking of the Sewol Ferry in 2014, which killed more than 300 people, most of them high school students. Many blamed the accident on safety violations and lax government regulation. Some South Koreans insist that their country has changed a lot since then. Others, like Chong Pucha, are not so sure. She lost her son on the ferry eight years ago. I've heard that when parents went looking for their children, some people wandered for four hours going from one place to another. How agonizing that must have been. So I thought nothing has changed. She says she survived the past eight years with the help of fellow citizens, and she came to Itaewon to pay it forward. Her advice to the parents of the stampede victims? Find a way to say goodbye to your children. Don't be consumed by grief. I'm worried for the parents who will live the rest of their lives thinking about their children in a prison inside their minds. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 67 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on all things considered, abortion rights activists in Kentucky are drawing inspiration from Kansas as they campaign against an anti-abortion ballot measure. That's just ahead. And tonight at 7 o'clock, it's on point. The midterms are right around the corner, and both parties are talking about the economy. What message will win with voters? That's On Point coming up tonight at 7 here on WBUR. Mostly cloudy with a chance of rain tonight. The lows will be around 56 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. One of the biggest pop artists of 2014 wants her new album to recapture the energy that was all about that bass. A lot of these songs can turn your day around if you're having a tough day. Megan Trainer opens up about relationships, body image, and how she's taking it back to her old school sound tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. Supreme Court is hearing arguments this week in two cases challenging race-based admissions policies in higher education. Conservative groups have sued both Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, claiming that their admissions processes aren't fair to Asian and white applicants. UNC Solicitor General Ryan Park defended the school's metrics today when he was challenged by Justice Samuel Alito. What is your goal? And how will a court ever be able to determine whether your goal has been reached? Our, our goal is uh, to achieve the educational benefits of diversity. And I understand that that is a, a qualitative standard that is difficult to measure. Uh, but I do not believe uh, that uh, a standard merely being qualitative uh, means that it is not susceptible to, to rigorous review. 
The vast majority of colleges and universities use race as one of many factors in assembling a diverse student body. Fragments of a Russian rocket intercepted by Ukrainian air defenses today landed on a town across the border in Moldova. From Kyiv, NPR's Julian Haida tells us it's the latest instance of a neighboring country fleeing the direct effects of Russia's war in Ukraine. The government of Moldova is yet again issuing an objection to Russia's war in Ukraine. Before, it was because Russia launched rockets against targets in western Ukraine over Moldovan airspace. And now, for the first time, Moldovan officials say parts of those rockets have landed in a village in their country. Like Ukraine, Moldova is not part of the EU. It also doesn't belong to NATO, meaning that officials there are solely responsible for what kind of steps to take next. For now, they're just calling it an accident. Moldova and Ukraine share a nearly 800-mile-long border, and for more than three decades, most of that borderland has been occupied by the Russian armed forces, propping up a pro-Russian breakaway republic. Russian ground troops that close to western Ukraine have long been a source of concern here. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The FBI's Boston division says it's one step closer to solving the murder of a woman previously only known as the Lady of the Dunes. The agency says it has now identified the victim as Ruth Marie Terry of Tennessee. She was found brutally murdered in Provincetown in July of 1974. She was the state's longest unidentified homicide victim until detectives identified her using investigative genealogy. FBI Special Agent Joe Bonavolanta calls it a major break in the case. Now that we have reached this pivotal point, investigators and analysts will turn their attention to conducting logical investigative steps that include learning more about her, as well as working to identify who is responsible for her murder. The FBI is asking anyone with information connected to Terry's murder to come forward. New applications for help in paying for winter for heat this winter will be accepted beginning tomorrow for residents in the Boston area. Action for Boston Community Development says fuel prices are expected to skyrocket. The organization says even families who think they are ineligible for help may qualify for federal heating assistance. Worcester is encouraging people to wear masks in public spaces during this cold and flu season. City officials say they're not just worried about COVID. They're also seeing a rise in cases of a respiratory infection called RSV. RSV usually causes mild cold-like symptoms, but it can be severe for some people, especially young children. Governor Charlie Baker is preparing to leave office with a relatively high approval rating. A new UMass Amherst WCVB poll finds 68% of registered voters in the state approve of his performance. That matches pre-pandemic levels and is a rebound from last year when Baker had a 52% approval rating. Voters give the Republican governor highest marks for his handling of the pandemic and the economy. Their harshest criticism is on his handling of transportation. Baker is not seeking re-election. His term ends in January. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School Boston a bilingual, globally-minded education, preschool to grade 12. Sign up for open house events at gisbos.org. In sports, the Bruins are off until tomorrow night when they skate against the Penguins in Pittsburgh. Celtics are off until Wednesday. They'll take on the Cavaliers in Cleveland. In the forecast for Halloween night, mostly cloudy with a chance of some rain. The lows will be around 56 degrees. Chance of rain early tomorrow, then mostly cloudy. The highs will be around 65. Wednesday and Thursday look to be nice, sunny. The highs in the low 60s. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. 
connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Abortion is on the November ballot in several states, including Kentucky. Voters there are being asked to weigh in on whether the state constitution should include any protections for reproductive rights. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, abortion rights activists are looking to Kansas, where voters rejected a similar measure in August, for inspiration. In Kentucky, abortion already has been unavailable for months under state laws that were allowed to take effect after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned decades of abortion rights precedent, including Roe v. Wade. Now, Kentucky's state constitution is at the center of the next fight. We're getting filmed. Uh -huh. Hi, we're here with Protect Kentucky Access. I'm Beth, and this is Judy. Hi. Do you Hi. have a moment to talk with us about Amendment 2? On a recent afternoon, volunteers Beth Kuhn and her friend Judy Teal are going door to door in a Louisville neighborhood, urging residents to vote no. So it's very rigid and unforgiving as a constitutional amendment? Amendment 2 would state explicitly that Kentucky's constitution offers no protections for abortion rights. If approved, it would complicate, if not entirely thwart, efforts to overturn the two state abortion bans that are currently in effect here. Those laws offer no exceptions for rape or incest and only narrow exceptions for medical emergencies. Rachel Sweet is the campaign manager for Protect Kentucky Access. In order to restore access to legal abortion in Kentucky, we have to defeat Amendment 2, and then the plaintiffs in those case, cases need to win. In August, Sweet led the successful effort to defeat a similar amendment in Kansas, where abortion remains legal up to 20 weeks. That vote in another conservative-leaning state surprised many observers. Sweet says here in Kentucky, the stakes are even higher. And whereas in Kansas, we were trying to really make an argument about protecting the status quo and you know, protecting the rights that we had in the Kansas Constitution. This is really about how do we start reversing the tide of these really extreme abortion restrictions that we've seen. For Kentuckians who oppose abortion, Amendment 2 offers an opportunity to shore up state restrictions for the long term. Adia Wushner is with Kentucky Right to Life and a leader of the Vote Yes campaign. She points to decades of federal litigation around abortion under Roe v. Wade and says she doesn't want to see drawn-out battles over abortion bans in Kentucky's state courts now. Remember, we've had Roe. We've been in the, the 49 years of Roe. No one wants 49 years of the Kentucky Constitution drug out into this battle. Polling on the ballot initiative is hard to come by, but a 2019 survey from the firm Public Policy Polling found that a majority of Kentuckians support abortion rights and oppose criminalizing the procedure. Wishner argues the amendment before voters would keep the state constitution neutral on abortion, which her organization opposes in virtually all circumstances. It just keeps it out of the constitution. It keeps it so there cannot be a misinterpretation in the constitution, and that's very important. But I think a lot of people are afraid, looking around the country, looking at some states that have passed laws without exceptions for rape and incest, for example. What are they afraid of? They won't be able to kill their children? Let's talk about what are they afraid of? 
afraid that they won't have the right for women to, to take the lives of their children? Do you think that's a right? Wishner notes that here in Kentucky, as in Kansas, abortion rights supporters have significantly out-fundraised groups who oppose abortion. But the amendment also has strong support from powerful conservative religious groups, including the Catholic Conference of Kentucky and the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Standing on her front lawn across town, Altia Connors says her faith points her to a different conclusion when it comes to abortion. And a lot of people, they look at it with the God thing. Well, they'll have to answer to God for themselves, but it's still their right. It's, it's their right to do with their body. Connor is standing in the sunshine as a local activist delivers a yard sign that says, Vote No, Amendment 2. Now 71, Connor was a teenager in the 1960s, before Roe v. Wade. She remembers girls sometimes taking desperate measures when they got pregnant, particularly one girl from her church who died after a botched abortion. I'm thinking now as a grown-up, that young girl didn't have to die. You know, she didn't have to try these homemade remedies and doing things like that if there had been a choice, if she'd had another choice. Today, once again, Kentuckians do not have that choice. But soon, voters will have a chance to send a signal to their state courts and lawmakers about whether or not that should change. Kentucky's Supreme Court is waiting to rule on the future of the state's abortion bans until after the election. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Louisville. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Washington Post columnist Carolyn Hacks. When she was 34, Hacks was living on her own and having a hard time. It was when my mom was sick. My mom died of ALS. And anybody who knows anything about that knows it's awful. It's just awful watching somebody wither while their mind stays perfectly clear. And so I was just struggling, but I was still working. I actually, through the whole thing, I didn't miss even a week of work, but I was, I think I probably lost about 20 pounds and was just, I must've looked haunted or something. But a, a colleague who wasn't normally in my group of friends, who I didn't work with directly, just started checking in on me, just, you know, stopping by to say hi. And then, you know, every once in a while, just shooting me an email. And sometimes it was chatty stuff. And sometimes it was, hey, how you doing? And it was purely overtures of friendship. There was no angling for professional advantage. There was no romantic interest. It was just a remarkable act of grace, I think. It was just this person who had an idea of what your normal was and was able to detect that things weren't normal and that maybe the world needed to be a little bit kinder to you in that moment. Actually, I'm, I'm choking up talking about it because it is so, it is such a profound thing that we can do for each other. I probably didn't put together completely that this person was there to look out for me until after I got better, after I got stronger. And then this person just sort of retreated back into the original place in my life and remains there. And that was the signal that I got, that this was sort of the world taking care of itself. In general, our hardest times are what make us the most compassionate. And sometimes the hardest times can also make us bitter and they can make us angry. But I think having kind people come forward 
to help you through something difficult will help turn that pain into compassion later. Carolyn Hacks. She lives near Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and writes a popular advice column that appears in newspapers all across the country. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for Unsung Hero comes from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Israel is holding a consequential election tomorrow. Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wants to return to office. This time he is allied with the far right. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports that one major factor that could help him win is the many Palestinian Arab citizens planning to sit out the vote. Assalamu alaikum. Munia El Amor is going door to door in her desert hometown, Rahat, Israel's most populous Arab city, asking, are you going to vote? She's 20 and working for a campaign to boost Arab voter turnout. Most of her neighbors answer, inshallah, God willing, which can be code for no. She replies, God willing, like not really, or you really will go to vote. We find voter enthusiasm here is low. 20% of citizens in Israel are Arab, Palestinian. Unlike Palestinians in the occupied West Bank or Gaza, they have voting rights. An Arab party even made history and joined the governing coalition this past year, seeking more influence for the marginalized Arab community. It didn't last long enough for voters to feel much difference. It was for nothing, says Bilal Kanani, standing in his yard. What have they done to reduce crime in the Arab community, he says. Every day we see someone killed. Today they found someone killed. We're sick of it. People are afraid to leave their homes. He intends to put a blank slip in the ballot box, a protest vote. Alamur, the get-out-the-vote activist, understands the frustration. She says there used to be a lot of organized crime in Israeli Jewish communities, and the authorities fought it. Despite Israeli government efforts to combat Arab crime in the past year, she thinks Israel has tolerated it because it makes Arabs look bad. She points to little kids trailing us. Why are they here, playing in the streets between the cars, she says. Her 11-year-old cousin got run over just the other week. She says these kids don't have after-school activities or public parks or playgrounds, like in cities with Jewish populations. There's a new generation of Arab citizens in Israel that expects more, says Amal Jamal, an Arab professor of politics at Tel Aviv University. They speak Hebrew fluently. They have gained uh, a profession in law, accounting, uh, engineering, high-tech, or uh, medicine. Integrating into the Israeli economy, but not translating that into political influence. The fact that it's not working is leading to frustration, alienation, and as a result, boycott of the elections. In Tuesday's elections, surveys predict Arab voter turnout could be lower than usual. Analysts say that could translate into a victory for right-wing Benjamin Netanyahu and his far-right allies, who are hostile to Arabs. One of them is Itamar Ben-Gvir. 
who recently pulled out a gun confronting Arabs. He's horrible. He's racist. He is the worst. Asma Al-Qadi, an organizer of the Arab Get Out the Vote campaign. And if he gets into the coalition and the government, our life is not going to be any better. Out on the streets, Alamur debates Mohaisan Kamalat smoking a water pipe on the sidewalk. She says, don't give up your right to vote. He says, that right is only for those close to power and influence. She says, what, we can't be close to power and influence too? If we throw in the towel and don't vote, she says, the right wing will take office. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Rahat, in southern Israel. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 66 degrees in Boston at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, when R.L. Stein's horror book series Goosebumps first came out, parents were clamoring for them to be banned for being too scary. The author continues to introduce new generations to the genre. That's just ahead here on WBUR. And coming in November, WBUR's Last Scene podcast returns with surprising new mysteries about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Follow Last Scene wherever you listen to podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain tonight. The lows will be around 56 degrees. It should be okay for trick-or-treating, though. A chance of some rain early tomorrow, then mostly cloudy. The highs will be around 65 degrees. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Grogan and Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, assisting families with the sale of their paintings and jewelry for 35 years. GroganCO.com. You know, to really understand this economy, you just got to get out and talk to people. I have never seen this many plants in one place in my life. <laughs> this is actually a little bit low for us. You're already competing against Amazon. My rent in this building is $2,000 a month. I'm Kai Rizdal, a street-level view of things from Buffalo, New York, next time on Marketplace. That's Marketplace, weeknights at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. It's that time of year when we celebrate the scary stuff, you know, ghosts and mummies and monsters. But most of us are amateurs of fright compared to a man who has spent the past 30 years dedicated to scares. R.L. Stein, author of the mega popular children's book series Goosebumps. Over the years, the franchise has spawned TV shows, movies, and of course, more books. NPR's Andrew Limbong, recently visited him to talk about how he's kept kids reading for decades. To get to R.L. Stein's home, you have to go all the way to the back of a lobby and get into this old elevator. It's quiet, unnerving, really, just you and the creak of the cables moving and the gears turning. And when the door opens, something attacks. Okay, okay, okay. If you're mad at me for opening this piece up with admittedly a cheap, jokey misdirect, you cannot blame me. It's the sort of thing Stein has built a career on. I don't really want to terrify kids. It's not really what I want. And if I think a scene is getting too scary, 
too intense, I throw in something funny. A typical Goosebumps cliffhanger will go, and then I saw something creeping on the other side of the window. And then the next chapter, it's just the annoying little brother. These cheap teases. Yeah, but then... Yeah, I... it's, well, that's, Goosebumps is mostly teases. We're sitting in his home office, filled with Goosebumps books, memorabilia, merch, and other creepy knickknacks. And how many offices have a three-foot cockroach? You don't see that every day, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stein's at his desk where he still sits down every day at 10 in the morning and tries to write 2,000 words. I don't know how how many times someone I imagine like my age has come up to you and been like, oh, yeah, I loved reading this stuff as a kid and all that stuff. And yeah. I, I'm nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nostalgia to you and your <laughs> everyone. That took a while to get used to. It's the 30th anniversary of Goosebumps. Stein's made it long enough that his original fan base is now sharing the series with their kids. You know, you get old. That's the tough pill to swallow, getting old. Terrible. But what a thrill. I get to scare a lot of generations, don't I? Stein is from Ohio. He moved to New York with big dreams of becoming a writer, just not the type of writer he became. In the 80s, he was working at a humor magazine, and his friend Gene Fywell, an editor at Scholastic at the time, was working on a teen horror book. Problem was, the author just dropped out. And she said, I'll bet you could write a good horror novel for teenagers. Go home and write a book called Blind Date. She gave me the title and everything, and I didn't know what she was talking about. What's a horror novel for teenagers? I was kind of desperate because I was on a timeline. So That's said, Jean Philo. You know, She's a publisher at Macmillan these days. I said, you know, like any blind date, it could turn horrific. So I'm sure you could find the horror in it and the humor because I didn't want it to be too intense. So I ran to the bookstore and I bought books by Christopher Pike, Lois Duncan, people who were writing teen horror so I could find out what it was like. And I think he literally wrote it in, I don't know whether it was a week, it was very, very quickly. And I said, oh my God, you've got a whole new career here. What did you see in him that made you think like, oh, he could do this? He is a very facile writer. Stories come to him very quickly. And he just writes. And writes and writes. While Blind Date was a hit for teens, Stein shifted to writing a series aimed younger, what books industry people call middle grade. It's an interesting age before you've realized that growing up is kind of awful and you're just on the precipice of not wanting to be a kid anymore. The first Goosebumps book was published in the summer of 1992. It was called Welcome to Dead House. Amanda, what is it? I saw someone. Who? It's about a family who moves into a creaky old house in a small town. Early on, that narrator, Amanda, goes out looking for her little brother, Josh, who's gone missing. She finds him in a graveyard, of course, but for some reason, he's running. Gripped with fear, I suddenly realize why Josh was darting and ducking like that, running so wildly through the tombstones. He was being chased. Someone, or something, was after him. Stein says he thinks this book is actually too frightening. He hadn't quite perfected the balance between jokes and scares, but it had an effect on readers like India Hill Brown. Welcome to Dead House. I remember reading it as a kid. It was so scary. I remember reading it as an adult, and it was so scary. <laughs> Brown is the author of two horror books for kids, The Forgotten Girl and The Girl in the Lake. And I remember one time, maybe a couple of years ago, I was just like having writer's block. She was working on her first book. And I was like... I'm going to read Welcome to Dead House. Like, I'm just going to put my own book out of my mind and just kind of focus on 
what made me love middle grade horror. It took a while for the Goosebumps hype train to take off, but when it did, it took off big. It had its own TV show with a theme song that still holds up. There were lunchboxes and thermoses and other merch. And to a certain type of super fan, the books themselves were collectibles. I remember scouring bookstores every month when the next Goosebumps was supposed to come out. Uh, Borders and Walden books, all these chains that have seemed to disappear from our landscape. That's Brian Stelter, formerly of CNN, where he was chief media correspondent and host. As a kid, he ran a fan site called The Bumps. Which I call the number one unofficial Goosebumps website. But it wasn't the only website. Stelter had competition. And I hope for Stein, it also showed the power and reach of his books that there were all these fan websites that were obsessed with his creations and wanting to talk and share even more about them. According to Feiwell, the former Scholastic editor, with Goosebumps, Stein accomplished a spectacular feat. He got kids, boys in particular, reading. For Stein, his success comes down to a guiding principle. My one rule for writing for 7 to 11-year-olds is they can't think it's going to be real. They have to know it's a fantasy. And then I can go pretty far with the scares. In 1997, a small group of parents in a Minneapolis suburb tried to get goosebumps pulled from elementary school libraries. Here's a little bit from an old NPR piece on the controversy, where you can hear parent Margaret Byron make the case at a meeting. The reality is that we sell violence, irresponsible sex, and materialism to our children. I don't believe goosebumps foster healthy values in our children. (laughs) You could maybe argue the materialism point, but no one in Goosebumps is at risk of serious harm, and there isn't any kissing or canoodling in the books, much less sex. The push to ban Goosebumps failed, partly because Stein had helped warding it off. We had so much support from teachers and librarians and reading teachers who saw that kids really went for them and kids really wanted to read them. It helped us a lot back then. They were always right behind Goosebumps. Now would be the part of a profile where I tie something Stein said to a bigger story going on in the news, like the recent rash of book bannings. Or maybe land on a tidy summation of his work that points to a deeper meaning, like how Goosebumps stories, like all good horror, is actually about deeper eternal fears. You know, do my friends like me or are my parents acting weird? But Goosebumps, for the past 30 years, has consistently, stubbornly avoided deeper meanings or bigger lessons. Stein never wanted to teach kids anything other than you just got to keep reading to find out what happens next. Andrew Limbong and Pure News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Paycom an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 66 degrees and a minute before 5 o'clock. Coming up at 5 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments today in a pair of cases that ask whether race can be considered in college admissions. That story and more ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow. On the web at tchs.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. If you give a plus to a minority but not to somebody else, you are disadvantaging the latter student. The Supreme Court is reconsidering affirmative action in higher education. It's Monday, October 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, some justices have indicated a willingness to overturn decades of affirmative action precedent. Also, federal authorities have charged David Wayne DePape with assault and attempted kidnapping in connection with the attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband in their San Francisco home. And the oldest inmate at the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, was released, reducing the inmate population to 35. This is part of the Biden administration's ongoing push to close the prison. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A California man is facing federal criminal charges for attacking the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with a hammer. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more. Police arrested David DePappi on Friday after witnessing him hitting Paul Pelosi, the House Speaker's husband, in the head with a hammer. According to court papers, officers found a roll of tape, white rope, a second hammer, rubber gloves, and zip ties in DePappi's backpack recovered at the scene. DePappi told police he broke into the home to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage and talk to her, but he said he would break her kneecaps if she lied to him. DePappi has now been charged federally with assault and attempted kidnapping. Paul Pelosi, meanwhile, has undergone surgery to repair a fractured skull and other injuries. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Elections campaigns are heading into their final week with control of Congress, especially the Senate, hanging in the balance. NPR's Domenico Montanero has more on what the campaigns are focusing on. Republicans are widely expected to take back control of the House, but the Senate is a different story. Strategists in both parties see Senate control coming down to five states, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, which are Democratic targets, and Nevada, Georgia, and Arizona, which are Republican ones. No one, though, is confident of which way any of those seats will go at this point, and it's very possible control of the Senate won't be decided for weeks. If no one gets over 50% in Georgia, that race will head to a runoff on December 6th. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News. Washington. Elon Musk effectively dissolved Twitter's board of directors when he took ownership of the company. That's according to documents filed today with the Securities and Exchange Commission. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon has more. 
When the billionaire CEO of Tesla and SpaceX bought Twitter, he became the sole director of its corporate board. Musk is reportedly planning layoffs at the social media company he purchased last week. He says he hasn't made any major policy decisions about content moderation or account policies yet. But this weekend, he tweeted a link to a conspiracy theory about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. He was criticized for sharing disinformation and later deleted the tweet. Raquel Maria Dillon, NPR News, San Francisco. The Powerball jackpot now stands at $1 billion, the second biggest in Powerball history. That's bringing big crowds to stores around the country that sell lottery tickets. The drawing is tonight, and winners can take the full amount in an annuity paid out over 30 years or a lump sum payment of around a half billion dollars. Of course, taxes will take a large chunk of that. And the odds are tough, one in 292.2 million. Wall Street lower by the closing bell, the Dow down 128, NASDAQ down 114. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The U.S. Supreme Court is mulling over whether Harvard University should be allowed to continue considering an applicant's race in admissions decisions. The justices heard arguments today in a case challenging that practice. The eventual outcome of the case could reshape who gets accepted and rejected at colleges throughout the country. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. Harvard's attorney Seth Waxman told the court affirmative action policies make universities better. Stereotypes are broken down. Prejudice is reduced and critical thinking and problem-solving skills are improved. The plaintiff in the case is a nonprofit called Students for Fair Admissions. Its lawyer, Cameron Norris, argues Harvard's admissions process unconstitutionally favors black and Latino applicants at the expense of Asian Americans. For competitive applicants, checking the right racial box is an anvil on the admissions scale, worth the same as ultra-rare achievements like winning a national championship. The court will issue a ruling in the case next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. There's been a big jump in gasoline prices in the past week in Massachusetts. AAA Northeast shows the statewide average price at $3.78 a gallon. That's a 19-cent jump from a week ago. AAA says the increase is due to a drop in the supply of available gasoline and sustained demand from drivers in the region. Tomorrow's the final day to apply to vote for vote by mail in the state. The Secretary of State's office is urging people to do so electronically. Mailed applications won't get to election offices in time for tomorrow's 5 p.m. deadline. Applications can also be completed in person at elect- local election offices. Well, ahead of Halloween trick-or-treating, it looks to be a solid evening. WBUR's meteorologist Danielle Noyes says things look to be moderate and pleasant. We've had some extremes on Halloween. We've been 81 degrees before and as cold as 27. This year, we're kind of meeting in the middle, a comfortable evening for trick-or-treaters. Temperatures slowly creeping down a bit into the upper 50s, eventually middle 50s, and that's where we'll stay through the evening and overnight. Clouds are moving back in, too, and they'll look a little bit ominous at times, but we're expecting to stay dry. Maybe a quick sprinkle or light passing shower on Cape Cod. After midnight, some scattered shower activity moves in, especially south of the pike, and we'll stick around for tomorrow. And the high tomorrow should be around 65 degrees. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The suspect in the break-in and hammer attack on Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, was charged today with federal violations, including attempted kidnapping and assault. The federal filing says the suspect wanted to hold the House Speaker hostage and, quote, break her kneecaps. Those and other disturbing details of the attacker in the federal complaint, which NPR's Eric Westervelt has been reading. He joins us now from the San Francisco Bay Area. Hey, Eric. Hey, good evening. Okay, tell me a little bit more about the federal charges in this case. Yeah, David DePap is charged with one count of assault on an immediate family member of a U.S. official. That includes, and this is the language in the in the charge, intent to retaliate against the official on account of the performance of official duties. Uh, he was also charged with one count of attempted kidnapping of a U.S. official. And again, in that charge, there's the on account of performance of official duties charge. If convicted, those two charges carry a combined maximum sentence of 50 years in prison. And I gather the complaint also has some some chilling details about the attack itself early Friday morning at the speaker's home in San Francisco. What'd you learn? Yeah, it really does. I mean, we've heard that Paul Pelosi was able to call 911 from his bathroom and the police responded quickly that the suspect, you know, repeatedly asked, where's Nancy referring to the speaker who was not at home? She was in Washington. But today the complaint shows, you know, that he made comments to police and told them, you know, he was going to try to hold Nancy hostage and, quote, talk to her. The complaint says, and I'm quoting here, if Nancy were to tell about the truth, he would let her go. And if she lied, he was going to break her kneecaps. He told police he did not expect Pelosi to tell the truth. Uh, And according to the document, he told investigators, you know, if her kneecaps were broken, she would, quote, have to be wheeled into Congress, which would show other members of Congress there are consequences to your actions. Um, He called the speaker, quote, leader of a pack of lies uh, by the Democratic Party. And I should note the complaint also, you know, shows that the police who responded found tools there, you know, that would certainly indicate he was preparing for an attempted kidnapping. You know, in his backpack at the crime scene, police say they found rope, tape, several pairs of gloves, a second hammer and plastic zip ties. Yeah, it's just chilling to listen to the details and contemplate how much worse this could have been. What do we know about the suspect? What more are we learning about him? Well, we know at times he was homeless in the San Francisco Bay Area, that in recent weeks he posted some rambling, conspiracy-laden theories about everything from COVID vaccines to the January 6th assault on the Capitol. Uh, He has lashed out online against people of color, women, Jewish people, and others. Uh, Years ago, he was a pro-nudity activist calling for an end to restrictions on uh, public nudity. I mean, a picture is emerging of a man who who drifted and uh, who apparently struggled with some serious behavioral health issues as well. And he may face other charges beyond these we've just been discussing? Yeah, he's in a secure ward at San Francisco General Hospital now, but DePap is expected to face state criminal charges followed by the district attorney here in San Francisco. Those are expected to include attempted murder, elder abuse, assault with a deadly weapon, and burglary. And he's uh, scheduled to be arraigned tomorrow in San Francisco Superior Court. All right. That is NPR's Eric Westervelt reporting from the San Francisco Bay Area. Thanks, Eric. You're welcome. At the U.S. Supreme Court today, affirmative action in higher education was clearly on life support. All six conservative justices indicated great skepticism about allowing race to be considered at all in college admissions. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. 
If the court's supermajority does what it sounded like it will do, it will end the ability of colleges and universities, public and private, to do what most say they still need to do, consider race as one of many factors in deciding which of the qualified applicants is to be admitted. At issue were affirmative action programs in two elite institutions, the University of North Carolina, which until the 1950s did not admit black students, and Harvard University, which was the model for the Supreme Court's 1978 decision declaring that colleges and universities may consider race as one of many factors. The court's liberals tried their best to suss out arguments supportive of affirmative action. Here, for instance, is Justice Sotomayor suggesting that the meaning of the post-Civil War constitutional amendments fits in with affirmative action today. So why is it that in the Reconstruction era, just when the 13th, 14th amendments were being passed, Congress spent a lot of money in trying to get black children, whether they were children of slaves or free slaves, to be educated in integrated schools. They had a belief, didn't they, that integration itself provided a value. Justice Jackson piled on, adding that the affirmative action programs before the court contain no automatic preference for black and Hispanic applicants. But lawyer Patrick Strawbridge, representing the conservative group Students for Fair Admission, countered that race is a determinative factor. That prompted Justice Barrett to ask whether it would be a consideration of race if a black applicant was admitted partially on the basis of an essay talking about his or her struggle in dealing with racial discrimination. Lawyer Patrick Strawbridge said such an essay would be an appropriate factor for consideration because he said it would show that overcoming such discrimination would say something about the applicant's character. Justice Kagan. The race is part of the culture, and the culture is part of the race, isn't it? I mean, that's slicing the bologna awfully thin. The court's three conservatives made very clear in the UNC case that in their view, carefully tailored affirmative action plans are justified in order to ensure that there's a diverse student body, which in turn produces better scientists, businessmen and women, teachers, etc., people who work better with others and are better able to be leaders, in their words. The court's conservatives weren't buying it. Even the chief justice, who normally likes to ask hard questions of both sides, made clear from the get-go, as he has in the past, that in his view, the Equal Protection Clause enacted after the Civil War was aimed at a colorblind society. Indeed, though three lower courts found in the UNC and Harvard cases that there was no evidence of discrimination against Asian Americans in college admission programs, as the Students for Fair Action claims, Robert said, without qualification that Asian Americans had been the victims of discrimination at both schools. Justice Alito followed up. What do you say to the simple argument that college admissions are a zero-sum game? Suppose you have a race. Two people are in a race. And you give a plus factor to one of the runners. So that runner gets to start uh, five yards closer to the finish line. Uh, The one who doesn't get that plus factor is disadvantaged, right? Lawyer David Hinojosa, who represents the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, replied, that's not the case at UNC because no bonus points are given to any applicant. North Carolina Solicitor General Ryan Park underlined that answer, noting that the university does not award points to anyone who self-identifies of any race. 
None of this seemed to make any headway with the court's conservatives, though. Perhaps the only advocate for affirmative action who did make any headway was Elizabeth Prelogger representing the federal government, and in particular, the military's need for a racially diverse officer corps. She pointed to racial tensions and violence during the Vietnam War between the largely white officer corps and the mainly minority enlisted force. So it is a critical national security imperative to attain diversity within the officer corps. And at present, it's not possible to achieve that diversity without race-conscious admissions, including at the nation's service academies. That led several of the court's conservatives to turn their attention to a different question, one raised in 2003 in the court's last decision upholding the so-called holistic evaluations of applicants, as in the UNC and Harvard cases. In the 2003 decision, Justice O'Connor, writing for the court majority, suggested that there should be an end to such programs, perhaps 25 years hence. That, of course, would mean that the nation is quite close to the time to end these policies, though none of the advocates for affirmative action really thought that they should be abandoned yet. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Zombies, ghosts, witches. Halloween is all about getting spooky from costumes to decorations. We have like the OG Hallmark paper cutout skeleton in like one window and then like the shadow witch in another window. (laughs) That is Whitney Allen of Gordonsville, Virginia. But as a mom of two daughters, she knows that for most children, the day's major focus is not decor, it's trick-or-treating. We're going to have a table set up. One end of the table is going to be a bowl with classic candy, you know, some popcorn, some gummy fruits, and then the other end is going to have some non-candy, non-food treats. That's right, non-food treats. That's because for many parents, the scariest part of Halloween can be the risks posed for kids with food allergies. This year, Alan is taking part in the Teal Pumpkin Project. Halloween can be extra scary for the one in 13 children with food allergies, but it doesn't have to be. The Teal Pumpkin Project It's a campaign launched in 2014 by a group called Food Allergy Research and Education, or FAIR, and it's designed to make Halloween safer for kids with allergies. Participating households put a teal pumpkin on their porch. That tells trick-or-treaters with allergies or dietary restrictions, this house has non-food treats. Like small toys, games, or stickers. Alan's kids don't have allergies, but she herself has celiac disease, and one of her daughter's best friends has diabetes. She says the Teal Pumpkin Project is a good way to make sure all kids can enjoy Halloween. And for their parents, it might just make the night a little less scary. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 65 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, Russia has suspended its participation in a U.N. and Turkish-mediated grain deal. That's just ahead here on WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 30th, buacademy.org. In business news, the Celtics are the fifth most valuable team in the NBA. A new ranking by Forbes put the value of the team at $4 billion. The Golden State Warriors are the NBA's most valuable franchise at $7 billion. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day down. The Dow was off 0.4% to close at 32,033. S&P 500 down three quarters of a percent at 38.72. And the Nasdaq closed down 1% at 10,988. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain tonight. The lows around 56 degrees. Chance of rain early tomorrow, then it'll be mostly cloudy. The highs around 65. Wednesday and Thursday look to be nice and sunny. The highs will be in the low 60s. Sunny and a bit warmer on Friday, the high around 67 degrees. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One of the rare diplomatic success stories in Ukraine is now in peril. Russia has suspended its participation in a U.N.-mediated grain deal. U.N. officials are still hoping shipments can continue because millions of people around the world rely on the food and fertilizer exports. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Russia called for an emergency U.N. Security Council meeting to protest Ukrainian drone strikes over the weekend on Russian ships in Crimea. Ambassador Vasily Nibenza said that prompted Russia to suspend its participation in the Black Sea Grain Initiative. He spoke through an interpreter. Everyone sees clearly now that the Ukrainian side considers the Black Sea Humanitarian Corridor for military and sabotage purposes. But the U.N.'s humanitarian chief Martin Griffiths says no cargo vessels were in the corridor the night of those drone attacks, and all parties agree this is a civilian program with joint inspections and carefully crafted procedures. To be clear, no military vessels, aircraft, or assets are or have been involved in support of the initiative by any party. Kenya's ambassador, Martin Kimani, said a reported drone strike in Crimea should not endanger global food security. He said he regrets Russia's decision to suspend its participation in a deal that the U.N. and Turkey negotiated. The world is hungry, and this development makes life harsher for millions who are not party to the war in Ukraine. 
The U.N.'s humanitarian chief is still holding out hope that Russia's suspension will be temporary. Martin Griffiths told reporters outside the Security Council chambers that 12 ships have been cleared to leave Ukraine, and there are about 86 ships already in the Bosporus, loaded with about 2 million tons of food. It was always going to be a rough ride implementing an initiative which brings two warring parties together, two warring parties for whom this war is as tragic and difficult and savage as what any I have ever seen. The U.S. says Russia's move is having immediate and harmful impacts. Grain prices rose over the weekend. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. For a little bit of joy these days, NPR is taking time to celebrate the things we are really into, like, you know, the stuff that keeps us going beyond the news. Well, for NPR's Nikki Jones, it's a good scare on the screen or on the page. At age 12, my girlfriends were living by Judy Bloom, but I was reading Stephen King thrillers for the second time. The first time I got detention in high school was for reading Clive Barker's The Damnation Game instead of the assigned book. I thought I was slick, too, sliding my newest horror book into my loose-leaf notebook. I was so engrossed that I gasped in the middle of class, much to the dismay of my classmates and teacher. It was sort of hilarious. He took my book and handed me detention. I learned that he was a horror fan, and we chatted about our favorite authors. He ended up reading my book during detention and thanked me for turning him on to someone new. My love of all things horror started when my mom let me read her spooky books, her endearing term for horror novels. I waited with bated breath for my mom to finish her latest spooky read because I knew that I got it next. I'd insert myself into this fictional world of monsters and demons, living in terror to turn the next page. My mother read The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty, and it definitely spooked her. I developed a carriage to read it years later, then saw the movie against her wishes. It was the scariest movie I've ever watched to this day, and the only horror film I refused to rewatch. It took me years to fully realize why my mother loved those spooky books so much. Those horror stories gave my mother the courage to leave her abuser. While my mother was putting on a brave face, she was dealing with her very own monster. I believe that her escapism into the horror genre allowed her to face her reality within a controlled environment. She knew that her life wasn't in danger when she read these books. Her empathy toward the characters being chased by monsters and possessed by demons and the happy ending for these protagonists well, sometimes, is what I believe allowed her to think that she too can escape the monster on his way home from work and have a happy ending. My mother found her strength through reading these books. She built courage, faced her fear, and learned to fight. It was a form of catharsis for her, purge and purification. The purging of her negative emotions like fear, anxiety, and low self-esteem the purification of her newfound emotions of bravery and needing to annihilate her monster. Novelists like Clive Barker and Stephen King dominated our little bookshelves, but it was a book by Jeffrey Convents that tilted me on my axis. The Sentinel was written in 1977. I remember my mother hiding it in the freezer because she didn't want me to read it. 
And of course, I saw this as a challenge. Unfortunately, I did not get a chance to read that book until I was an adult. However, I did something much worse. I saw the movie. This movie has everything. Big movie stars like Christina Raines, Burgess Meredith, Ava Gardner, Chris Sarandon, and an adorably young Beverly D'Angelo. It had supermodels, penthouse apartments overlooking Central Park, and a blind priest. He's a priest. He's kind of senile. He just sits by the window. He's blind. Blind? Well, then what does he look at? And it had demons, both metaphorical and physical. This movie scared the bejesus out of me, and I wanted more. In the days before streaming, we would visit video stores to rent our movies. We had Blockbuster, Earl's Video, and a ton of mom-and-pop shops. Every Friday, my mother and I would hit up these video stores for the best horror VHS tapes. She introduced me to movies like Ghost Story, Amityville Horror, Reanimator, The Evil Dead, and so much more. I still watch these movies, typically in the early morning on the weekends while my husband and daughter are still sleeping. I think about my mother and feel a sense of calm and peace. I remember Bruce Campbell bringing her to tears through her laughter in The Evil Dead. Groovy. When it's snowing outside, I'll watch Ghost Story because she and I both love the beauty of the snow in the film. I will take you places where you have never been. From the start. I will show you things that you will never see. Beginning. And I will see the life run out of you. When I watch newer films, I think about her reactions if she were alive today. I believe that my mother would be the biggest Jordan Peele fan because of us. She'd probably check out Hereditary twice. Speak No Evil would leave her speechless. My mother passed down her love of horror to me. These books and films gave her courage, and she wanted me to live courageously. In her eyes, this genre would help her, help me, to be the strong and independent woman that I am today. She was right. That was NPR's Vice President for Change Management and Transformation, Nikki Jones. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 65 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, the oldest inmate at the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, was released, reducing, reducing the inmate population to 35. It's part of the Biden administration's ongoing push to close the prison. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Mostly cloudy with a chance of some rain tonight. Shouldn't affect trick-or-treating, though. The lows will be around 56 degrees. Chance of rain early tomorrow, then mostly cloudy. The highs will be around 65 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Dr. Linda Vidon, Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. 
We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In New York, lawyers for both the defense and the prosecution have made their opening statements in the criminal tax fraud trial of two of former President Trump's businesses. NPR's Ilya Meritz was in the courtroom. Prosecutors say the case is about greed and cheating. They say the evidence will show Trump Organization executives ran a scheme for years to cheat on taxes by not reporting some forms of non-cash compensation to employees. Jurors were told they'll see Donald Trump's signature on a lease agreement for a high-end apartment and a private school tuition check. Defense lawyers told the jury there was indeed cheating, but these crimes were committed by a longtime Trump executive, Alan Weisselberg, and done exclusively for his benefit. Weisselberg has already pleaded guilty and is expected to testify for the prosecution. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. Authorities in Iran say they're planning to hold public trials for hundreds of people for participating in weeks of protest. We get more from Istanbul and NPR's Peter Kenyon. The protests were sparked by the death in police custody of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who had been detained for, quote, improper attire by Iran's morality police. But the demonstrations quickly expanded and transformed into general anti-government rallies, with calls of death to the dictator, a reference to Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Officials and state media have tried to frame the unrest as a, quote, plot hatched by Iran's enemies, including the United States, in an alleged effort to destabilize the country. Iran's judiciary says it will seek to distinguish between those airing grievances and those who it says want to overthrow the government. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. A billion-dollar Powerball jackpot is up for grabs tonight. It's the second largest in Powerball history. It comes less than two years after a Mega Millions lottery ticket matched all six numbers to win a billion bucks. No trick. The odds are one in 292 million. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments today about the use of race in college admissions and whether or not it's constitutional. The future of affirmative action in higher education may be at stake. Admission practices of Harvard University and the University of North Carolina are being challenged. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas questioned the educational benefits of affirmative action. I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, It seems to mean everything for everyone. The schools say they use race in a limited way, but the elimination of it as a factor would make it harder to achieve a student body that reflects the United States. A decision is expected next spring or summer. The victim of the state's oldest unidentified murder case has finally been identified. The Boston FBI office says the woman, once only known as the Lady of the Dunes, is Ruth Marie Terry of Tennessee. She was found murdered in Provincetown back in 1974. Detectives identified her using investigative genealogy. The FBI says it will now try to learn more about her as they work to solve her murder. Gasoline prices in Massachusetts have risen by an average of nearly 20 cents per gallon in the last week. Spike has a lot to do with supply and demand. More of us are on the road and supplies are limited. WBUR's Dave Faniff has more. AAA Northeast spokesman Mark Shieldrop says a gasoline inventory here in the Northeast is below last year, and last year's inventory was already lower than normal. 
With more people on the road, he says the situation is becoming acute. Inventories here in the Northeast fell by about 1.5 million barrels just in the past week. Meanwhile, in the rest of the country, inventories built up a little bit. So we're seeing a, a little bit of a tight supply situation here. And refiners are working at near max capacity. The latest AAA Northeast survey shows the average statewide price of the pump at $3.78 a gallon. In Metro Boston, the average is $3.88. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanef. It's 5.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated. With works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere, November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Should be mostly cloudy with a chance of some rain tonight. The lows around 56 degrees. Chance of rain early tomorrow, then mostly cloudy. The highs will be around 65. Wednesday and Thursday look to be nice and sunny. The highs in the low 60s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The inmate population at the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, is now down to 35 men. That's after the oldest prisoner there, a 75-year-old man, was let go over the weekend and sent to Pakistan. His release is part of the Biden administration's ongoing push to close Guantanamo, which has held nearly 800 people since it was opened after the 9-11 attacks. And Pierre Sasha Pfeiffer has made several trips to Gitmo and is with us now. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Elsa. So tell us about this 75-year-old man. Like, why was he being held in the first place? His name is Saifullah Paracha. He's a Pakistani citizen who was accused of being an al-Qaeda sympathizer. And he was first sent to a secret CIA prison in Afghanistan where he was tortured. Then he was sent to Guantanamo. But he was never charged with anything. Mm. He's one of the forever prisoners, the nickname or so-called name for the Guantanamo inmates being held indefinitely without charge or trial. Paracha was held for nearly 20 years at Gitmo before he was transferred to Pakistan on Saturday. And I should note he was photographed at a McDonald's in a Karachi. So he is very quickly settling into post-prison <laughs> it's been life. a while since he's visited McDonald's. <laughs> Why was he finally let go? Guantanamo has the equivalent of a parole board that periodically reviews prisoner cases. And Paracha was reviewed in May 2021. And this parole board determined he was no longer a security threat to the U.S. and was free to go. But he was held another 18 months almost. And long delays are common between being cleared for release and actually being released, partly because the U.S. has to find countries to take these men. And you can imagine those are complicated negotiations. Right. Okay. Well, let me ask you, former President Obama had vowed to close Guantanamo? and he failed to do that. Why does President Biden now think he could have more success than Obama? Yeah, you know, I think he recognizes that Republican resistance to closing Gitmo is fading. That's partly because it's very costly. The tab is about 13 million taxpayer dollars per prisoner per year. Mm. And one Guantanamo defense lawyer I spoke with, Michelle Parody, points out that many Gitmo prisoners are getting up there in years and they have medical problems that the facilities there are not equipped to handle. Here's how Parody puts it. 
no one wants a severely ill old man, which is what increasingly the detaining population is becoming, on their hands. It's a difficult, expensive, and politically perhaps risky proposition to have individuals dying of old age in Guantanamo. And Elsa, by the way, of the 35 men left at Guantanamo, 20 have been cleared for release. Wow. What about the other 15 men? What's their status? This is trickier. Some are facing charges and will probably never be released. That includes Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged 9-11 mastermind, and his four co-defendants. That 9-11 case has been stuck for years in pre-trial hearings, but very few people in Guantanamo circles believe a 9-11 trial will ever actually happen. The military court, or military commissions as it's called, are widely viewed as a failure. Even Harvey Rishikoff, who used to head Guantanamo's court, says that. I heard him speak recently at an event calling for Guantanamo's closure, and here's part of what Rishikoff said. Across the board, the commissions have not performed their primary function, which is to quickly go to trial, come back with a verdict, and move on. This is not what has happened. So he says the 9-11 case should be resolved through a plea bargain, most likely life in prison without parole. This would be instead of the death penalty. Well, how do the families of 9-11 victims feel about that? It would certainly disappoint them that because they want some of these men executed. But, you know, they're worn out. They've been waiting for resolutions since 2001. Here's Colleen Kelly, who co-founded a victim's family group, speaking at the same event where Rishikoff recently spoke. 21 years is too long. I look at terror attacks around the world, Bali, India, Madrid, the UK, more recently in Belgium and in Paris. Those trials have happened. Those people have been held accountable. There has been no accountability for what happened on September 11th. So she says plea deals are a practical solution. That is NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer. Thank you, Sasha. You're welcome. It's neither trick nor treat, really. But after Halloween passes tonight, tomorrow, November 1st, will mark the opening for enrollment for health insurance. We're talking insurance through the Affordable Care Act marketplace for coverage in 2023. And this year, there are a few changes designed to help people looking to buy health insurance and maybe make it more affordable. Senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, Julie Appleby, has the breakdown. Hey there, Julie. Hey, how you doing? I am well, thank you. So I'm thinking more affordable sounds great. However, we know that premiums are, are getting more expensive for everyone, whether we're buying through ACA marketplaces or from employers. Do these changes provide any relief from that? Yeah, actually, you know, inflation is going up for health insurance on average about a 4% increase for Affordable Care Act plans, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. But the good news is for a lot of people, the vast majority of people get some kind of subsidy for an Affordable Care Act plan. And as the premiums go up, the subsidies go up along with them. So that pretty much offsets the premium increase for most people. Again, shop around because you might need to change insurance plans to see those savings. Okay, so that sounds encouraging. How do people find out if they qualify for that? They can go on healthcare.gov, which is the federal government website that serves about 33 states, or on their own state website, and they can plug in their income and other numbers. There's also a number of calculators online that'll help you figure out what the subsidies are. And this year also, the Biden administration continued an effort it started last year of increasing funding for these folks that help you enroll. They're often called navigators or assisters. And so folks can find help signing up with that as well, and they can learn a little bit more about the subsidies. Is what you're describing part of these efforts to address what's been called the family glitch, uh, so that more families will have a choice between whether to do an ACA plan or whether to do an employer plan? 
That is one of the big changes for this year. So under some new rules that were just finalized by the Biden administration, it expands the number of families with job-based insurance that are now eligible for an ACA subsidized plan. So before, if you had job-based insurance that was considered affordable, you couldn't go on the Affordable Care Act marketplace and get a subsidy. And how did they define, you know, affordable? And it was based on how much it would cost the worker out of pocket for an employee only plan, not the cost for adding the family members, which is generally a lot more expensive. So now under these new rules, they're going to look at both. They're going to look at how much is for employee only and how much would it cost to add the family members. And if that cost is more than 9.1% of a person's household income, that family could choose to go, you know, forego the work-based coverage and go on the ACA and get a subsidized plan. Not everybody will save money, but some people might save money by doing that. That's called the family glitch. And they might save money by going on the ACA and getting a subsidized plan instead of going through their work-based program. And before I let you go, you said that we should shop around, uh, which is always great advice. If we are looking to shop around, maybe switch uh, switch our ACA plan, what do you advise? How should we do it? Well, certainly compare across plans and look across what they're called the metal levels, you know, the gold, silver, bronze plans, see what subsidies are available. Don't look just at premium costs, but look at the things like deductibles and co-pays. Make sure your providers that you want to use are in the network. And just a quick reminder of the key dates to have in our heads. Right. Uh, open enrollment starts November 1st, and it goes through January 15th in most states. But remember, if you want coverage that starts on January 1st, you generally need to sign up by December 15th in most states. Got it. So time to get cracking. Thank you, Julie. All right. Thank you. That is Julie Appleby, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In a downtown Manhattan courtroom today, the criminal tax fraud trial of former President Trump's family business got underway in earnest. NPR's Ilya Meritz was in court for opening statements by prosecutors and by the defense, and he is with us now. Hey, Ilya. Hi, how you doing? Good. Okay, so set the scene for us. What was it like in there? So we are in New York State Criminal Court, and this courtroom has been pretty busy for the past week as the two legal teams worked with the judge to seat a jury. This morning, the jurors filed into the box and took their seats, and it was Susan Hoffinger from the district attorney's office who spoke to them first, and she said, this case is about greed and cheating. And then she went into some detail about how one Trump executive in particular, Alan Weisselberg, was paid in addition to his regular salary through a lot of big benefits like an apartment with river views, a couple of Mercedes Benzes. It amounted to more than $1.7 million in income that neither Weisselberg nor the Trump companies reported and no one collected or paid taxes on it. And that's the core of the case. Okay, that's the prosecution side. What did the defense say? Weisselberg did this for Weisselberg. He was the chief financial officer and he abused the trust of the Trump business. That was the message from Trump attorney Michael Vanderveen. He said the Trump business had outside accountants looking at their books, Mazars USA. It's a big firm. And Mazars did not raise flags or offer any objection to these big ticket untaxed benefits. So why should the company question that? The defense's argument is that the real culprit here is Alan Weisselberg, and he has already pleaded guilty, so there's no reason to try to hold the company as a whole to account. 
So it sounds like there was a lot of focus on Alan Weisselberg. What about his boss during all of this, Donald Trump? Trump is not a defendant in this case, but his name came up several times. Mm -hmm. Jurors were told they'll be shown a rental agreement with Donald Trump's signature on it and also a tuition check for Alan Weisselberg's grandkids to attend a private school. And I think all this points to a question that was sort of hovering in the air today, which is, where is Donald Trump in all of this? It's his business with his name on it. Yeah, he didn't know about any of this. And of course, if he did, well, he kept Alan Weisselberg around for decades and decades. How come? In fact, Weisselberg is still on company payroll after pleading guilty to a felony. The defense team did offer an explanation for that today. They said Weisselberg is like family. He's been with the company for so long. And you don't just cast out a family member when they make a serious mistake. Well, for Trump, can you just lay out what is at stake here? Donald Trump definitely doesn't want his family company to be convicted of a felony that could harm the business. He also has a substantial legal team here in place, including two lawyers who represented him at his second impeachment in 2021. Public filings show some of these lawyers have been paid large amounts by the Republican National Committee in a Trump-aligned PAC. And that just sort of underlines how this state tax case, which probably wouldn't attract a lot of attention otherwise, is actually really bound up in national politics. So just real briefly, Ilya, what's next? Alan Weisselberg at some point will be called to the stand. He is 75 years old. He's not someone who's been in the spotlight very much, but he was at the center of the business. He has pledged to testify truthfully or potentially face a lot of jail time when he's sentenced after this trial. That is NPR's Ilya Meritz. Thank you so much, Ilya. Thanks, Elsa. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 65 degrees in Boston at about 10 minutes before 6 o'clock. Ahead on All Things Considered, Alana Mayo is the film executive that greenlit the movie Till. She's also black, queer, and under 40. We'll have her story coming up next here on WBUR. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. In sports, both the Bruins and the Celtics are off tonight. They'll be uh, the, the Bruins will be back in action in Pittsburgh tomorrow. In the forecast, the forecast it's going to be uh, cloudy tonight. Uh, chance of rain, the lows will be around 56 degrees. Chance of rain early tomorrow, then cloudy. Most of the highs will be around 65 degrees. Wednesday and Thursday look to be nice and sunny. The highs in the low 60s. Right now, 65 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. There was no doubt going into this Congress that Xi Jinping was poised to make a big move to open the way to a third term as China's Commerce Party leader, president, and military commander, the three roles in which he controls China. The big uncertainty is who is going to walk out on stage with him when he introduces China's new leadership. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. 
That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The new movie, Till, has gotten rave reviews for its depiction of civil rights martyr Emmett Till and his mother. The movie was greenlit by a young studio executive who's positioned to be the new face of Hollywood star making. NPR's Netta Ulubi met her in Los Angeles. The president of Orion Pictures is 38 years old. She's black, queer, and a devoted dog owner. Hi, Simone. Oh my gosh, she's a lover. Simone is a fluffy rescue happily bouncing around the sunny hillside home. She's a lover. Oh, no, no! A catastrophe with coffee cups is narrowly averted. Challenges are no problem for Alana Mayo. She took over Orion Pictures in 2020. The storied studio once produced such movies as Platoon, Dances with Wolves, and The Silence of the Lambs. Known for its sparkling Constellation logo and prestige pictures, the studio went bankrupt in 1991. Orion was bought by MGM and more or less languished. Mayo's job is reviving it, right when the entire industry is in massive upheaval. But she seems undaunted. The most self-satisfying part of my job is getting to make the kinds of movies that I want to make inside of the Hollywood system. Movies, like a high school romantic comedy that started streaming on Amazon this summer. Amazon now owns MGM. The movie, Anything's Possible, is about a black trans teenage girl. I'm worried about people only pretending to like me because they want to be woke or something. Anything's Possible is the first movie directed by actor Billy Porter. He talked on CBS this morning about making an upbeat story starring an empowered teen trans heroine. She gets a boyfriend. She goes to college. She's going through the regular normal, you know, emotions and emotions that greenlighting movies like Anything's Possible and the one about Emmett Till is a mission for Alana Mayo. She grew up in a Chicago suburb, and while studying film at Columbia University, she realized something about the movies she'd grown up loving. I couldn't believe how homogenous they were in terms of who's on screen and who's behind the camera. I I genuinely, like, oh, this system is, by design, exclusionary of a lot of people. I realized it was completely broken. Like a lot of people in Hollywood, Mayo is connected to that system through her family. Maya's dad was a top urban radio executive, and her mom worked in entertainment law. But in spite of her access to the tippy-top tiers of her industry, Mayo has risen in a world with very few people like her. I worked with Ava DuVernay on Selma, and that was my first time ever seeing a Black woman in a position of authorship and power. Even after years working with top filmmakers, Mayo was blown away, she says, by television like Atlanta, created by Donald Glover. I said to Donald, I was like, it's as if you climbed in my head and wrote me. The music is the music that I listen to. The jokes I get in the way that it's how my friends and I joke. That was happening in television to scale very quickly. Donald Glover, she says, is a genius at executing his vision. Mayo decided she wanted to execute the vision of other artists who impressed her. That's when I started going into rooms and saying, you all are missing an opportunity here. Financially, you're leaving money on the table. And also, 
why wouldn't we want to be making more of this? This is some of the most exciting art that's coming out from our industry today. Mayo's other projects include an upcoming movie called Women Talking by Sarah Pauly and the current TV show 61st Street that's a little bit like The Wire. 61st and Road. The first episode was directed by Marta Cunningham. Usually we associate executives with these kind of shark-like mentalities, right? Cunningham talked about Mayo at a party for 61st Street at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Her being a black woman, young, fearless, queer in the industry, and kind. It's not about her paycheck, her status, her power. And it's so refreshing. It's kind of time for something new. Alana Mayo says the ground may feel like it's collapsing in Hollywood right now, but what healthy industry stays the same for a hundred years? The trick, she says, is to keep seeking risk and artistic reward. If you have the privilege, as I do, to be alive in this moment and in a position where you can either tell stories or partially determine which stories are told, I don't know how you can't be excited about what's being left on the table. Alana Mayo is not only making the table bigger, she might be redefining what the table is. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Today's the day. Kids getting dressed up for Halloween trick-or-treating. Adults heading out to horror films like Pray for the Devil. And critic Bob Mondello reminiscing about the simpler frights he helped scare up in his first job. Yeah, yeah, it's a dark and stormy night. Roads washed out. Hello? Phones gone dead. The mystics read her Ouija board. You show us a sign. And zombies are popping through doorways left open by a demented Cupid doll. Been there, seen that, got the T-shirt. In fact, I practically designed a T-shirt for this stuff back in the 1970s before I was a movie critic. My first gig out of college was doing publicity for a theater chain called Roth Theaters, working for Paul Roth, an old-school movie guy who'd probably forgotten more about showmanship by that time than I'll ever know. He had a couple of drive-in theaters, and for them, Halloween was both a challenge and an opportunity. The right place for scares, obviously, but hard to find new movies for when the weather got cold. So Paul dug deep in the B-movie horror vaults and showed me how to sell the sizzle, not the steak. Something like this. Friday night at the ranch drive-in, our dust-to-dawn Halloween horror-thon. An all-night fright fest with five, count of five, full-length features. Shuttering specters guaranteed to scare you shoutless. Film so terrifying, can't even reveal the title. Yeah, couldn't reveal the titles because they were more terrible than terrifying. We can say this. No one with a heart condition will be admitted. We'll have nurses in attendance and a hearse standing by. Man, I used to love writing copy like that. Years later, when John Goodman played a 60s horror guy in the movie Matinee, wiring theater seats to deliver electric shocks at scary moments. The big studios, none of them have anything like it. I felt like I was watching my boss. I love this business. These days, you go to a scary movie, you see a scary movie. And no question, the scares are scarier now. It's all up there on screen. But the old horror-thons and terroramas, which were horror-thons but sexy, had their charms too. I still remember Paul showing me how a little red food coloring in the popcorn oil could turn a bucket of popcorn into a bucket of blood. Kind of gross, right? But the point was to scare the yell out of you, and we mostly did. I'm Bob Mandela. Little question of taste? No, no, but your younger patrons, you could have some seat wetness.
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is a mainstream space that is now being almost deliberately inundated with false and misleading information and hate speech, and it's going relatively unmonitored. Elon Musk took control of Twitter last week, and disinformation experts say the impact is already being felt. It's Halloween. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, Musk himself posted a baseless conspiracy theory over the weekend. Also, still no concession from Brazilian President Bolsonaro after losing yesterday's election. Voters there decided to return former President Lula da Silva to power. And some animals, like birds and frogs, are famous for the sounds they make, but have you ever heard a turtle? Most turtles were thought to not make any sounds at all until researchers went deep. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Federal charges handed down today for the man accused of breaking into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home and attacking her husband, Paul, has been charged with attempting to kidnap the speaker and assaulting a relative of a federal official. Paul Pelosi suffered a skull fracture and injuries to his arm and underwent surgery. Police say 42-year-old David DePap broke into the speaker's house in San Francisco, demanding to know where she was. When officers arrived, they witnessed him beating Mr. Pelosi with a hammer. Police say he was armed with zip ties, rope, and tape. Conservatives on the U.S. Supreme Court were skeptical about the use of affirmative action in college admissions as they heard arguments today and challenges to policies at two elite universities. But as NPR's Dustin Jones reports, the court's liberals pushed back. The conservative majority on the 6-3 high court is asking whether universities could put in place race-neutral admissions policies that would still ensure a diverse student body. The court's three liberals defended affirmative action. They argued it would be difficult to achieve diversity on campus without the consideration of race and admissions. The baseline for affirmative action programs in higher education was established in 1978. 
the court has since added that each applicant must be evaluated individually in a holistic way. The cases before it now challenge the fairness of race-conscious admissions policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. A decision is expected by next summer. Dustin Jones, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to block the House and Ways, uh, House Ways and Means Committee from accessing his taxes. That committee wants six years' worth of Trump's, Trump's tax returns as part of a congressional investigation into the audit practices of the IRS. Trump says he doubts that and told the court that the committee's true purpose has, as he put it, nothing to do with the IRS and everything to do with releasing his tax information to the public. Ships carrying grain set sail from Ukrainian ports this morning. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports it follows Russia's withdrawal from a U.N.-backed deal. A dozen ships carrying more than 350,000 tons of Ukrainian grain and other agriculture products, according to the Ministry of Infrastructure, are destined for Africa, Asia, and Europe. Their departure suggests Russia is holding off on its planned blockade of grain shipments and is open to more talks. Russian officials announced over the weekend they were suspending participation in the agreement. They accused Ukraine of launching drone attacks against a Russian war fleet in the Black Sea. Western leaders quickly denounced the move and called on Moscow to reverse its decision. NPR's Franco Ordonez reporting. Wall Street lower by the closing bridge. You're listening to... NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The FBI's Boston division says it's one step closer to solving the murder of a woman previously only known as the Lady of the Dunes. The agency says it has now identified the victim as Ruth Marie Terry of Tennessee. She was found brutally murdered in Provincetown in July of 1974. She was the state's longest unidentified homicide victim until detectives identified her using investigative genealogy. FBI Special Agent Joe Bonavolanta calls it a major break in the case. Now that we have reached this pivotal point, investigators and analysts will turn their attention to conducting logical investigative steps that include learning more about her as well as working to identify who is responsible for her murder. The FBI is asking anyone with information connected to Terry's murder to come forward. Authorities are reporting another white supremacist gathering in Massachusetts. Members of a neo-Nazi group rallied yesterday at a Kingston hotel where dozens of migrants without homes are living. The demonstrators wore masks and made anti-refugee comments over a loudspeaker. The Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition issued a statement condemning the protest and praising organizations and officials that are helping the migrants. Worcester is encouraging people to wear masks in public spaces during this cold and flu season. City officials say they're not just worried about COVID. They're also seeing a rise in cases of a respiratory infection called RSV. RSV usually causes mild cold-like symptoms, but it can be severe for some people, especially young children. Governor Charlie Baker is preparing to leave office with a relatively high approval rating. A new UMass Amherst WCVB poll finds 68 percent of registered voters in the state approve of his performance. That matches pre-pandemic levels and is a rebound from last year when Baker had a 52 percent approval rating. Voters give the Republican governor highest marks for his handling of the pandemic and the economy. Their harshest criticism was for his handling of transportation. Baker is not seeking re-election. His term will end in January. We'll expect a lot of ghosts and goblins out tonight. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noy says it should stay dry for your Halloween evening outdoor plans. 
No tricks to this Halloween forecast. Mild temperatures are only gradually cooling back through the upper 50s and then eventually middle 50s for trick-or-treaters, so no need to get super bundled up this year. Skies will be mostly cloudy overall, and most of us will be dry. The only spot I could see a sprinkle or light-passing shower is Cape Cod. I don't even think it's worth having the umbrella, though. After midnight, more scattered showers will arrive for everyone and linger into tomorrow. And tomorrow's high should be around 65 degrees. Wednesday and Thursday look to be nice and sunny, the high is in the low 60s, and it'll be sunny and a bit warmer on Friday, a high of 67. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Elon Musk has owned Twitter for less than a week, and already things are changing. Researchers and the company's own staff have identified a coordinated campaign to spread hate on the platform. Musk himself has shared an unfounded conspiracy theory about Nancy Pelosi's husband. And to talk about all of this, we're joined now by NPR Shannon Bond, who covers online platforms. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so as we said, we are just a few days into the Elon Musk era on Twitter. How are things going? Well, Elsa, this is Elon Musk we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, of course, it's controversial. Um, Now, he has never been shy, right, and especially in how he uses Twitter. You know, he has more than 100 million followers there. He's long used his account to provoke, to tease, to troll. And now he's doing these things but from a position of a lot more power. And, you know, that means that worries about what his ownership will augur for this company were really exacerbated this weekend when he posted this baseless, lurid conspiracy theory about the violent attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul. Now, this came from a fringe website with a long history of posting fake stories. Now, Musk eventually did delete the tweet hours later, but not until it had already been, you know, retweeted and liked tens of thousands of times. And I think this matters, right? Because now he is the one calling all the shots here. He's fired the company's leadership. Today, he dissolved its board. It's just him. Okay, well, that's just one tweet in particular. But I imagine we are seeing broader changes, right, across Twitter? Yeah. I mean, I think you remember uh, that Musk said before he owned Twitter that he wanted to unleash more free speech on the platform. Mm -hmm. He has previously said he thinks all legal speech should be permitted there, no matter how offensive or harmful. Now, last week, he walked that back a bit. He said it couldn't be a free-for-all hellscape. You know, he doesn't want to scare off advertisers, which are how Twitter makes money. But as soon as news broke on Thursday that he had taken control of Twitter, we saw plenty of people celebrating this idea that he's going to get rid of what they see as censorship on the platform. I spoke with Sarah Aniano, a disinformation analyst at the Anti-Defamation League. Elon Musk has said enough on Twitter even before his takeover to make people believe that he is on the side of saying whatever you want without consequences. Yeah, so then what's been the impact of those words? Can we tell? 
Well, Aniano and her colleagues have been tracking what's happening on Twitter, and they found that since Musk took over on Thursday, users have posted thousands of tweets and retweets with anti-Semitic memes. There's also been reporting about a rise in racist slurs. I took a look at Twitter data, and you can see a definite increase in the use of several racist and homophobic slurs in just the past few days. Hmm. The researchers say this is being driven by a coordinated campaign on on platforms popular, popular with the far right, at least in some cases here. And, you know, we're seeing people encouraging each other to amplify these hateful posts on Twitter. Well, how has Twitter responded to all of this so far? Well, Musk and the company didn't respond to requests for comment. But on Friday, Twitter's head of safety tweeted that they are aware of a coordinated campaign to post hate speech and are banning these accounts. In fact, he said just 300 accounts were responsible for more than 50,000 tweets using one one slur. Musk himself last week posted to clarify that no changes had been made to Twitter's existing rules. He says he's going to create a content moderation council of people with diverse views and won't make any big decisions before then, including things like bringing back President Donald Trump, who was or former President Donald Trump, who was banned. Mm-hmm. I think also, though, what the past few days have shown is that even without making any actual changes to Twitter policy, Musk is making his mark. And there's a group of people who are feeling emboldened by his ownership. They are already having an impact. Indeed. That is NPR's Shannon Bond. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks, Elsa. Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, has yet to speak publicly since his defeat in last night's runoff election. The incumbent, far-right populist, lost to leftist and former president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. It was a big defeat for Bolsonaro, whose movement will live on despite his personal political loss. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports. The chanting and partying continued in many neighborhoods in Brazil's largest city, Sao Paulo, long after election officials called it for Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. I'm very happy. 39-year-old Claudia Miranda says she is elated, relieved, so many emotions. I really hate Bolsonaro, so I'm hope for happy days or best, uh, best days. Not far from this ecstatic bar scene, 69-year-old Bolsonaro voter Tonya Mara was feeling dread. She was standing outside a quiet pizza place. She says she trusts Bolsonaro, who isn't a thief or corrupt, taking a shot at De Silva, and says she's worried about placing the improving economy in the president-elect's hands. After a bruising and dirty campaign waged by these two men with very different political persuasions, Brazil is deeply divided. De Silva won by a little more than two million votes, less than two percentage points. Last night, speaking to supporters, he immediately acknowledged the great divide and pledged to be president for all. We are capable of building a country for everyone, a Brazil with peace, democracy, and opportunity for all, he said. That's going to be a tall order. Da Silva is a skilled, seasoned politician. This will be his third time as president. And he wrangled together a broad coalition, including lawmakers and activists, to beat Bolsonaro. But Sao Paulo-based political scientist Guilherme Casarroyos says Bolsonaro is not going away. He has the backing of 58 million people who voted for him. If Bolsonaro uh, can mobilize this, this massive amount of votes, he will be able to uh, serve as the opposition to the Lula administration, not only in Congress, but also in the streets and in social media. 
Bolsonaro's party did well in Congress and won many governor's races, making it now the leading political opposition force in the country. That will complicate many of De Silva's promises, including his pledge of zero tolerance for deforestation in the Amazon. Oliver Stunkel, an international relations expert in Sao Paulo, agrees that Bolsonaro's base isn't going away. Brazilian democracy has stepped back from the cliff, but it still uh, faces a profound threat from destructive polarization, which will make it very difficult for Lula to govern in the coming years. On a street in this well-to-do Sao Paulo neighborhood, a popcorn vendor is doing brisk business. She living in bolhas hoje, né? Se eu não concordo com o seu posicionamento político, religioso, eu não convivo com você. Voter Cecilia Cochea says everyone is in informational bubbles these days and don't communicate with those who don't agree with them. She lives that at home. She voted for De Silva. Her husband, Henrique Garcia, voted for Bolsonaro. Vivemos democraticamente. Eu respeito, ela me respeita. <laughs> but he says they live democratically and respectfully together. Many hope Brazil can do the same. Carrie Khan, NPR News, Sao Paulo. Some animals are famous for the sounds they make, birds and their songs, frogs and their ribbits. But have you ever heard of a talkative turtle? Well, most turtles were thought to not make sounds at all until researchers went deep, as NPR's Laurel Wamsley reports. Do turtles talk? What about other lesser-known vertebrates? The answer is yes, according to a new paper in Nature Communications, presenting evidence that many species thought to be mute do in fact vocalize. And the researchers caught it on tape. Here's a southern New Guinea giant softshell turtle. And here's a Sicilian, a limbless amphibian that lives hidden underground. Gabriel Yurgovich Cohen is lead author of the paper and an evolutionary biologist working on his Ph.D. at the University of Zurich. The project got started after he read about a turtle in the Amazon making sounds, and he started wondering about the little sounds his own pet tortoises made. He got in touch with a researcher at his former university in Brazil. He developed a type of hydrophone, which is pretty much a microphone that goes underwater. And I started recording my own pets, and I, I actually heard them making a lot of noises. It was on. He traveled to eight or nine institutions in five countries on a quest to record animal species that were thought mostly to be mute. He recorded 50 kinds of turtles, as well as tuataras, Sicilians, and lungfish. And it turned out none of them were mute. Actually, every single animal I recorded made sounds. He says the findings point to a common ancestor some 400 million years ago. Neil Kelly is a paleontologist at Vanderbilt University. Sometimes it's surprising how much we still don't know about things that aren't necessarily uncommon, but live alongside us. Kelly says the paper's conclusion, mapping these vocalizations onto the evolutionary tree, makes sense. He notes there are unique challenges to studying animal sounds evolutionarily. It's very hard to trace that in the fossil record, because sounds obviously don't fossilize. Um, and most vocal equipment is soft tissue based. And it's important to note that sound production and hearing are different things. Snakes, for example, are famous for their hissing sounds, but they aren't thought to be able to hear themselves or each other hissing. 
And a turtle making sounds doesn't necessarily mean that it's communicating that way, says John Weens, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Arizona. I think there's some conflation of making sounds and acoustic communication. Yurkovich Cohen says that while they aren't sure what all the sounds mean, they used several strategies to identify sounds used for communication, such as using cameras to correlate sounds with behaviors that could demonstrate some kind of intention. Weens says the recording of these sounds is an important step toward further understanding. If you don't record these sounds and you know report them, there's no reason why anybody would study acoustic communication in, in those things, right? You don't even know that they're making sounds. The next step, he says, is figuring out what all these animals might actually be saying. Laurel Wamsley, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 64 degrees in Boston at 619. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, a look at how effective affirmative action has been in achieving higher diversity on college campuses. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage acoustic and electric guitars, because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. In business news, Waltham-based lab equipment maker Thermo Fisher is acquiring a British diagnostics company. The acquisition of the Binding Site Group will cost Thermo Fisher about $2.5 billion. The Binding Site's products include tests to identify blood cancers and immune system disorders. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day down. The Dow was off 0.4% to close at 32033 S&P 500 down three-quarters of a percent at 3872 and the Nasdaq closed down 1% at 10,988. Marketplace is up in about 10 minutes with all the day's business news here on WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Boston University Academy, where high school students pursue their passions as far as they can take them. Virtual open house November 30th. Be curious, be kind, be you at BUA. Online at buacademy.org. 435 House seats, 35 Senate seats, 36 governorships, and countless local positions. All up for election this November. Keep listening to WBUR for the midterm updates you need. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a chance of some rain tonight. The lows around 56 degrees. Chance of rain early tomorrow, then mostly cloudy. The highs will be around 65. Wednesday and Thursday look to be nice and sunny. The highs in the low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations. Reserving now for private holiday parties, tapas529.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Today, the Supreme Court began hearing arguments in two cases that could impact affirmative action. These cases challenge the constitutionality of race-conscious admissions at Harvard University and at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Admissions policies that take race into account have faced plenty of legal challenges over the last several decades. And a key question at the center of the debate is... Has affirmative action actually worked to make college campuses more diverse? 
Well, we're going to talk about that particular question with Dominique Baker, Associate Professor of Education Policy at Southern Methodist University. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So I know that you've been listening to today's arguments before the Supreme Court. When the Supreme Court issues its ruling on affirmative action, tell me what specifically might you be looking for? Uh, Most of us are looking and saying, okay, we think it's likely that they are going to constrain the use of race-conscious admissions policies. And the question is, how far are we constraining? Mm -hmm. And so it matters so much more than just for colleges and universities. And it matters so much more than just for initial enrollment. There are programs that are focused on things like helping Black and Latinx students uh, become doctors, right? There are all these types of things within college and universities. There are all these other things as well, thinking about uh, the labor market and the workforce, that we have created policies that are race conscious, that I think could be touched on, depending on the direction the court would like to go in their decision. Well, the purpose of these kinds of race-conscious policies has been to address discrimination that had long put students from non-white and less affluent backgrounds at a disadvantage. So how has that been working so far? What can you tell us about racial representation trends at colleges and universities in this country the last 40 or so years? Part of the challenge with this is that we have some states that have banned race-conscious admissions policies, and we have some states that are allowed to use them. And what we sort of see is that states that are allowed to use race-conscious admissions policies have much higher racial diversity compared to states that aren't allowed to use them. Um, But I do think it's important to note that even within institutions that uh, are allowed to use race-conscious admissions policies, there are still cases where you have institutions that are not as diverse uh, as we would want them to be. Well, I know that you've done your own study about what could happen if really selective universities institute some kind of like random draw lottery in their admissions process, uh, a process that wouldn't take race or gender or income into account specifically. And I'm so curious, what did you find in that study? We found that regardless of what we looked at to say sort of you're academically eligible for this lottery is if you institute some sort of lottery, you're going to see sharp drops in Black uh, and uh, Latinx students um, enrolling in both highly selective institutions, but also moderately selective institutions. So a, a significant portion of the country, not just the Harvards and Yales of the world. So what do you think ultimately should be the best path towards equitable college admissions? One of the things that's really challenging about the current state of race-conscious admissions policies is that over time, the Supreme Court has narrowed and narrowed what the focus of what was supposed to be this broad idea of affirmative action um, from LBJ. Several different Supreme Court cases have changed the focus to the point that race-conscious admissions policies can only focus really on finding ways to diversify the institution, which is really different than trying to find ways to redress past harms uh, that have uh, been inflicted upon people uh, by purposeful uh, policy decisions. So the 
ideal way to think about college admissions that would focus on actual racial justice would be to expand the scope of colleges and universities and our country to think about the ways to redress past harms. That is Dominique Baker of Southern Methodist University. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. South Korea is mourning the victims of the nation's worst crowd disaster on record. Revelers surged down a narrow alley during Halloween celebrations, killing more than 150 people. The exact cause has not yet been determined, but as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, many are asking whether police crowd controls could have averted the disaster. Buddhist monks chant and strike bells in wooden blocks as mourners lay flowers, candles, and liquor at an improvised altar. It's by a subway station in Seoul's hilly, multicultural Itaewon neighborhood. Around 100,000 young partygoers, many in Halloween costumes, packed into the area on Saturday night. Near the altar is the narrow alleyway into which the crowd surged. It runs downhill to Itaewon's main street. Hours after the surge, a bar worker stood at the uphill end of the alleyway. He didn't give his name, but he told reporters what he saw from inside one of the clubs that lined the alley. We could hear some people in the crowd saying, don't push. But someone in the back said, hey, push, push. And people started screaming, and the crowd poured in toward our club. He said minors aren't allowed into his club, but he let them in to save them. But even after that, people collapsed at the entrance and some passed out. We tried to rescue them, but our club was at the end of the surge, and there were already three or four layers of people piled on, so we couldn't. Police have combed the alley for clues about just what triggered the crowd surge as the country observes a week of national mourning. The National Police Agency said that they had 137 officers on the scene, but they were directing traffic and preventing street crime, not controlling the crowds. But the police should have been better prepared, says Moon Hyun Chol, who's a professor in the Department of Police Science at Sungshil University in Seoul. The large crowd didn't just gather suddenly, he says. There were plenty of signs from the day and the week before that this was going to happen. The stampede is the latest national tragedy to be seared into South Korea's collective memory. The last big one was the sinking of the Sewol Ferry in 2014, which killed more than 300 people, most of them high school students. Many blamed the accident on safety violations and lax government regulation. Some South Koreans insist that their country has changed a lot since then. Others, like Chong Pucha, are not so sure. She lost her son on the ferry eight years ago. I've heard that when parents went looking for their children, some people wandered for four hours going from one place to another. How agonizing that must have been. So I thought nothing has changed. She says she survived the past eight years with the help of fellow citizens, and she came to Itaewon to pay it forward. Her advice to the parents of the stampede victims? Find a way to say goodbye to your children. Don't be consumed by grief. I'm worried for the parents who will live the rest of their lives thinking about their children in a prison inside their minds. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul.
This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 63 degrees in Boston at 6.30. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, chance of some rain tonight, lows around 56 degrees, chance of rain early tomorrow, then mostly cloudy, the highs will be around 65 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, providing fully equipped BL2 lab space for biotechnology startups right next to Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com.